Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast. Um, today, with a guest that took a while to arrange with, uh, David Schreier. Great to talk to you, Jonathan. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Um, so we usually start the same way, um, that we obviously give our stage um, to the guests um, to kind of, yeah, tell our audience where he, she is coming from. Um, kind of um, in a storytelling way through their professional life, uh, the different stages, uh, what has shaped them, and basically, you know, to kind of give a, a background on, on, on also understanding on how they ended up where they are today. Absolutely. Well, ha happy to give you a, a quick walkthrough. Um, you know, I think, so the, the headline is that uh, my whole career has been oriented towards this question of, you know, how can technology drive change in the world? How can, how can we have a, a better world through the use of technology, particularly in my instance, uh, through the applications of data-driven or data-related technologies? Uh, and I think the, the fascination that I developed with that idea uh, began when I was a kid and I was reading science fiction. And, and a lot of the science fiction authors, at least that I read when I was younger, tended to be the more optimistic ones, right? So you, you have, you have uh, very dystopic science fiction, thing, you know, movies like Gattaca or, or uh, uh, Brazil or something, you know, where, where the world is terrible, quote, in the future. Uh, but then you have very optimistic science fiction and, and Star Trek kind of embodied that, uh, where, you know, technology became this thing that, that let, let us live better lives and go places we'd never go before and have a, a more utopian and diverse society. And, and so, you know, when I not only was reading science fiction, but also growing up, my family would gather around the television and, and watch the original uh, uh, Star Trek episodes. And, and, and so I think that that's probably where, where it started for me. Uh, and you know, I, I thought originally that I was going to become uh, a bioengineer. Uh, so I had this aspiration to do something entrepreneurial, uh, and, and I had some aptitude for, for biology. And, uh, and so I, I studied uh, neurobiology and, and uh, uh, related areas in, in university. And, um, and I also started playing, I'd been playing around with computers since I was eight years old. And, and so also in university, I started playing around with uh, relatively early artificial intelligence technologies. So I was programming, you know, uh, uh, expert systems and, and even uh, I, I did a project where we didn't really have the hardware to be able to do a fully, you know, we'll call it a powerful and profound neural network, but we could create a simulation of one. So one of my projects was creating a software simulation of a, uh, of a neural net. So, so I was on the one hand, like exploring how computers could sort of simulate how the brain works and how something thinks. And on the other hand, I was playing, actually playing with brain tissue with, with looking at, at neurobiology and, and how you could use, you know, uh, um, synthetic substrates in order to, to regrow lost brain tissue and things like that. Um, so, so that was my, my educational background and my upbringing. I grew up in a, in a suburban town and in Northern New Jersey in the United States. Um, but then when I graduated from college, I, I kind of explored another passion of mine, which was theater. Uh, and, and I argue to this day that the most powerful and meaningful training I got was in liberal arts in my undergraduate time, uh, doing theater and, and learning how to work with teams of people. Because I, I was a producer and a director, so I'd be running teams of people on different projects with a, a very tight budget and a, a short time frame. Um, and, and so that I found was a, 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 an essential skill set that later served me well when I was doing more entrepreneurial ventures. You know, at, at, the, uh, at the school I went to, in order to direct a play, you had to pitch your concept for the play to a board of your peers. Uh, and so that was my first exposure to pitching. And again, that was something which later became useful when I, when I had to learn how to pitch venture capitalists. Uh, so, so I was doing theater and I, you know, I, had, I actually worked with some really interesting people and, and that's kind of another conversation. Um, but after, after a period of time with that, I kind of looked at it and said, you know, it, it's, it's all well and good, but I don't really get the business model. <laughs> because, you know, at the time, this was before what they call the Disneyfication of Broadway. So before you had uh, shows that actually could make money reliably, 
you had a lot of, uh, shall we say, erratic decision-making. Uh, and so I polished up my computer skills. I got a job at a, a Wall Street investment bank, uh, and I started developing financial systems around banking data. Uh, and so, uh, so that was really my first job in fintech back before we called it fintech. You know, I did fintech before it was cool, right? I was doing it when, when you know, the, the financial technology guys were the, the trolls in the basement, you know, you would have, we were literally on a lower floor in the skyscraper than everybody else at the investment bank. And, uh, you know, we kind of had to creep out of our lair to, to go talk to the, the bankers. But, um, but it was an interesting time because, uh, you know, I, I was inside this marquee brand. This is uh, Lazard, right? Well, well-respected financial institution. And so I just started networking and my boss was very, you know, permissive. And so uh, I find in life, and this is one of my entrepreneurial lessons, if you ask for something, often you can get it. A lot of people, the number one reason most yeah. people don't make a sale is they don't ask for it. Exactly. <laughs> the number one reason charities don't raise money. I mean, they've done studies. Number one reason charities don't raise money is they don't ask for the gift. Yeah. And, and, and so, uh, so I, I found at the time there was one guy who was, quote, the internet banker, David Braunschweig. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, he was sort of doing this crazy experiment with this thing called the internet in the mid nineties. And, and, uh, uh, and so I said to him, look, I, I kind of understand this technology stuff you know, can I help you out with the work that you're doing for your, for your banking clients? And so he let me work on some strategy pieces for uh, uh, what was at the time called the mining company, which eventually became about.com, which was one of the earlier kind of internet success stories, such as it was. Uh, and it was a directory, right? Before you had Google, you had these directories. And so about.com was, was kind of like a mix between Google and Wikipedia, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, and so, so I did some strategy documents for him, and, and then I, I found the guys who were running the tech venture capital fund for Lazard, and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a technologist, and you're doing venture capital, and, you know, it, it, let me be a due diligence resource for you and teach me how this venture capital thing works. Um, and they said, okay. And, and my boss at the time, who was actually sort of in charge of my salary, said, look, um, you know, as long as you get your work done, you can do whatever you want with extra hours. Right. Um, and so I got to do all of the fun stuff that happens inside an investment bank without working investment banker hours and without suffering the same kind of abuse that the typical entry level investment banking analyst would have to suffer through. Right. Um, so, so that was, that was, you know, a, a lesson and a few things for me about, you know, navigating a, a, a decent size, it wasn't a huge organization, but a decent sized organization uh, as well as, you know, this idea that, you know, if you want something, you know, ask for it. And you'd be surprised at how often people say yes. <laughs> that's really interesting. Um, I, 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 find, I find that, you know, that's, um, that argument actually quite true because uh, that is, this is something that I've, uh, you know, talked to, uh, to, talked a lot about with my, let's say, you know, with my friends as well, with my mentors, you know, it's like, it's just, you know, especially if you come, it always depends, you know, if you start out in something, especially, I mean, you know, now you explained it, you, you know, we were just starting out. I was, uh, let's say, in your, on your first job and stuff. People always, let's say, think that they're more or less not coming from a position of strength, right? So that they're, let's say that if you're asking something that you're always coming from a position, like yeah, from a weaker position, kind of, right? And that, that you do not really have anything to offer. And that's why you feel like you, you're not allowed to ask, right? But that's, that's the funny thing is that, you know, it's, it's really the opposite. If you don't ask, you're not going to get it. And the thing yeah. is, everybody is busy. Everybody, let's say, has a lot to do. Everybody has a lot on their time. But the thing is, you would be surprised or people would be surprised that, you know, that once you start asking, right, obviously it's also about giving. It's not just about asking. But once you start asking, you, you, you will be surprised at how, like, how willing people are actually to help you. Yeah. And, and also, you know, if I have to sort of look back with the perspective of, you know, whatever, 27 years later and, and imagine myself at, on the other side of that ask, you know, here's a, a, a young, energetic guy who's willing to do free labor that potentially adds value. So it was a, a low risk, decent upside uh, uh, exchange for them. And, and the other thing that uh, Lazard did for me is they paid for me to take seven classes in finance and accounting at NYU. So I had no prior exposure to you know, formal training in accounting or finance. And, and, and I got some really excellent classes. Like the guy who taught me 
financial statement analysis at NYU is the same guy who trained the incoming uh, uh, investment banking analysts at JP Morgan. We right. used the same curriculum. So, uh, so it was, I didn't study business as an undergraduate and, and, uh, and actually I never got an MBA, but I got the, the MBA toolkit uh, again by just asking and you know, lo and behold, there was a tuition reimbursement program and they were happy to pay for it and it was, it was great. Let me do my job better because now I understood what the bankers wanted better uh, and, uh, and everyone was happy. Um, and so then I, I sort of realized uh, that after a couple of years of that, I, I realized that I could, you know, basically double or triple my salary overnight if I just started consulting with all of these dot coms that were springing up. Right. Um, and so I started working with a bunch of dot coms and, and, and that was interesting. And then one of my clients said, you know, um, GE could really use people like you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so then I got a job in the business development group at, at NBC, which at the time was owned by GE, you know, the big TV station. Now it's called NBC Universal and whatever, but, but uh, it's owned by Comcast. But, but at the time it was owned by GE. And, um, uh, and, and, and so that, that was another key lesson, I think, that, that I found time and again, two things. Um, oh, by the way, the, the venture capitalist I worked with at Lazard later, you know, a few years later offered me a job at his VC fund on salary. So, you know, building relationships is something that, you know, it's always worth maintaining relationships. You never know when it's going to pay off exactly. and, uh, uh, and, you know, be receptive to opportunity. I found like a lot of the most interesting things that happened in my life are because, you know, someone asked me to do something and I said, yes. Uh, and, and frequently for most of my career up until I was like 39 years old, most of my career consisted of someone working with me and then offering me a job. Right. Right. And so that was sort of the, the circumstance of where I got into corporate innovation. So in 1999, uh, someone, this client of mine worked with me and then got me this job. She was an executive recruiter uh, working with a startup and she also was working with NBC's digital media division. And so she, she got me placed there. Um, and, and, and that was a fantastic experience. And, and we worked on all sorts of interesting deals to help this big traditional broadcast media company innovate and become more digital. And, and, um, uh, and, and I began to develop a lot of my principles of practice that I still use two decades later of how to help a big company innovate. Um, and, and, you know, so my methodology was successful enough that not only did I outperform everyone else in my division by 500%, but, uh, a professor at NYU heard me give a speech mm-hmm. that, hey, why don't you um, come teach this corporate venturing class with me at NYU? And that's how I got my first academic appointment in 2000, uh, where, where eventually I became a, an adjunct associate professor at, at NYU's business school and, and was teaching on corporate venturing and entrepreneurship and, and, and you know, run, helping run the business plan competition, all on the side from my, my day job as a corporate innovator and venture capitalist. Right. Um, let's, let's take two steps back before we jump, let's say, um, into, into um, your engagements within academia, because that yeah. is something that we're going to get to um, uh, just in a few moments, uh, because sure. you're doing some really amazing stuff there as well. Let's talk about, you know, I find it interesting because you said like, you know, it's, it's, it's the end of the 90s and you're, 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 let's say you're going into this, you know, corporate innovation um, space. And, you know, the funny thing is, I believe that uh, this is actually the time, you know, if, if, we, if we just look at the past decade, so from like 2010 to 2020, this whole, let's say, digital transformation hype within large organizations, you know, establishing innovation units, establishing, um, you know, whole teams that are just thinking about, okay, so how can we basically disrupt ourselves or whatever. It always refers, the funny thing is, if you look at the PowerPoint presentations of these companies, you know, uh, the funny thing is that it always refers to these two examples that you have, right? You have uh, the, the one with uh, Kodak and then, then with Nokia, you know, and, and the funny thing is that those are examples, right, from, from like the beginning of the 2000s. So, and, and the funny thing is, I'm, you know, that is also what I, let's say, you know, what I want to talk to you about is, how do you see, like, if, if you're looking now at, you know, 10 years, 20 years later now, Compared to the, the end of the 90s and 2000s, when you were already, let's say, in the corporate innovation space, right? Yeah. How and, and, and I had I had a little leg up because my father 
helped run Exxon's corporate venture capital fund in the 70s, which was legendary. It was like one of the biggest early examples of corporate venture capital. Right. Uh, and, and there's a whole fascinating story around that. But, but he was in charge of Exxon's solar energy businesses. Okay. Um, and, and so that, that, he gave me a lot of guidance and mentorship on like what corporate venturing was and, and how, it, uh, uh, how it was uh, uh, evolving. And so I actually ended up, um, uh, we, we, we started sketching out an article which would have been you know, a 30-year perspective from Rockefeller Plaza because NBC's headquarters were in Rockefeller Plaza and the Rockefeller family founded Standard Oil, which eventually led to Exxon and, and Mobile and other mobile and other companies. And so, uh, um, so it's called ESSO in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, uh, so his office was literally a block away from my office with a 30-year difference in time around corporate venturing and and you know it, it the, the you know even 30 years prior a lot of the lessons were still applicable in the late 90s early aughts but but sorry I cut you off you were gonna ask a question yeah so I mean the question is fairly simple to that respective um, how do you how do you see basically you know if, if it's an end of the end uh, the, the end of the 90s or let's say beginning of the 2000s we just have mm -hmm. this, let's say you know this big internet bubble you know this whole yeah era and there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of hype obviously right there's a lot of let's say you know a lot of uh, big thoughts and big aspirations but then again there's reality right the bubble burst but still again there's you know there's this niche where things are developed right and then suddenly over the next years of the next decade we see big businesses being disrupted or let's say going out of business and now if we take period from 2010 to 2020 and we, we look at, you know, companies going really building up digital transformation units, right? Building up these innovation teams that are just thinking about internally, okay, you know, how can we build up new business models? How has that changed to, let's say, you know, your time back in the 90s doing corporate innovation there? Yeah, so, so um, it, and I'm going to make some statements which are, which are not unique. I want to emphasize these are not proprietary right. insights. This is, there's been a lot of Right. And research that's been done around this. Um, so first of all, it is better studied. So there is more literature around it in academia uh, where people have, have analyzed what's going on in corporate venturing. Uh, and, and I have some good colleagues who, who continue to do that kind of work. Um, so corporate venturing tends to follow reasonably predictable patterns. Right. It is a lagging indicator of innovation in a particular sector. So usually venture capitalists uncover or build a sector and entrepreneurs and, and it grows. And once you have some exits, the corporate venture capitalists wake up and say, oh, we should be there. And they start investing. And so it's not always, but often after the peak. Um, and so peak corporate venturing activity tends to be after peak venture capital activity. Uh, and, and venture capitalists are extraordinarily opportunistic. And so they will jump out of something prematurely, but they're more likely to jump out of something before you know, anyone else does. Um, it leads to all sorts of discontinuities that create opportunity if you're alert to them. Uh, but, uh, but that's something, and then what happens is, you know, kind of a market decline occurs and the corporate chiefdoms um, pull back on their corporate innovation and corporate venturing activities. So the half-life so uh, Josh Lerner at, at Harvard Business School has published some good research on, on, on the sort of survival rate of a corporate venturing executive. And so the, the average half-life is like one year, you know? And, and there are reasons for that, which, which we probably don't need to, I, I don't know how much detail you want to get into on this call, but uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, you don't stick around long enough to, to uh, um, really have the kind of impact you could because on average, because all too often what happens is, uh, um, you know, the, the bosses then shut things down exactly when you could be investing. So, so uh, I've seen now four market declines and, and very often the outrageously exceptional returns are when you buy at the dip. Right. And, and, and when you invest, when everyone else is, is running away. So there was one corporate venturing activity I was involved with, uh, um, where, you know, it was, it was in a down cycle and we had identified an acquisition target and their investors were largely corporate VCs, but because the corporate bosses had said, no more VC, we're not putting any more money in it. Uh, this company needed to provide liquidity to its investors. 
And so they had to sell, but because it was a downturn, the venture capitalists were sitting on the sidelines. So, um, uh, so, so they couldn't really easily get money from VC. Uh, and, and so we were a public company. So we came along and said, hey, what, why don't we buy you? And we were gonna buy, be able to buy a business that had 200 million of revenue, right. something like 40 million of EBITDA, and we we're gonna be able to buy it for five times EBITDA. Right. Which, and, and the growth rate on that business was over 50% compound annual growth rate for the last six years. So a fast growth business with a lot of cash flow, decent market scale, blue chip customers, and we we're gonna be able to buy it for a steal. I mean, five times EBITDA, we could have literally borrowed all the money to buy the business. And, um, you know, it, it, we worked six, nine months on that. Uh, and then, and this is another sort of classic example of how corporates continue to mess up with corporate venturing. Um, a brand name management consultant firm, I'm not gonna say who, but it was one of the top three, came along and there was a CEO change. So there was CEO succession. And they told the new CEO, you don't get credit on Wall Street for buying companies, so don't buy this company. <laughs> now, that was completely untrue. For the prior two, three years, that business had bought six companies and a lot of their market cap gains could be attributed to smart acquisitions and integration. But, but this management consulting firm had made uh, like a living for years out of slightly breaking and then being brought in to fix this business. They would every three or four years sort of kind of mess it up and then kind of fix it. And they were milking that for years. Um, and so, so the deal didn't happen. And two years later, that company that we tried to buy was a public company with the same market cap as us. So, you know, so that's another classic uh, example of why corporate venturing is not more successful because CEO tenure is about four years these days at big companies, big public companies. And, and corporate venturing only really works when you have CEO support. Exactly. And so when a new CEO comes in, almost invariably what they do is they get rid of all the initiatives of the prior guy because they say, I'm new and better and I'm going to do new things. Um, and with that goes the corporate venturing guy, which is why, as I said to you, the half-life of the corporate venturing guy is about one year. So, so it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's really kind of fascinating, but, uh, um, you know, if you're going to do corporate venturing, first of all, it's not for the weak of heart. And, and second of all, uh, you know, you want to have impact quickly because there's a chance that your sponsorship will go away. Exactly. This yeah. is not always the case. Intel capital has been investing for literally for decades and, and done pretty well. Yeah, yeah exactly. and they have gone through a sine wave sometimes of, you know. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to put the link here. You know, the, um, I, just read, I just read an article a couple of uh, weeks ago, basically, you know, stating, it was, it was again, you know, referring to, referring to Kodak at the time and um, uh, just basically saying, okay, you know, what's, what's, what's the problem? Again, you know, coming back to that innovator's dilemma, uh, yeah. Christian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Funny thing is, it's not that these companies, you know, didn't didn't have, you know, from a traditional R&D perspective, you know, putting so much money. Although I, I have a colleague who insists that there are deep flaws in Christensen's work. And yeah, I'm not going to. Everyone knows the innovator's dilemma. But right, every, yeah. exactly. Everybody knows it. So I'm not going to get into it. But what I'm just trying to, let me just go to my, um, to my point here. It is, um, so it's not that the company did not have, let's say, a solution. It was yeah. just that the business model was too good. So their, their let's say, status quo, their sure. working business model was they so They got addicted good. to the cash flow. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and that's the problem, right? And that's where corporate venturing is, let's say, let's say, coming in, right? If we have difficulties, let's say, you know, we have this large organism, right? That, that is our company, right? With all the processes and all these things that are so difficult to change, right? And we are not mm -hmm. able to, let's say, you know, from the inside, develop yeah. new, let's say, revenue streams, new value propositions, stuff like that, because it just, you know, that organism works as it works. You know, it has grown to an extent. It has, mm -hmm. like, it, it, is, it is so much in depth that it's difficult to change. And now, the funny thing is that if we look back now to 2020, again, like all these big companies that we have, um, you know, these traditional companies, especially if we take the automotive industry, for example, right? They're doing so, like, it's so hard for them. And the funny thing is that you would think that corporate venturing is a way out of that, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, capital is there. Well, but people make these broad generalizations. But, like, Ford has actually done a decent job with corporate venturing. 
Okay. It's partly, it's, it's in no small part because the family still has a huge role in the business. Right. And so there's continuity of leadership. And Bill Ford has been a champion of accessing university innovation in an intelligent way and then bringing it into his business and saying, this will happen. Um, and, and so, so uh, you know, I wouldn't be quick to dismiss entire sectors, although, yeah. you know, the, so what's going on here, right? When you, when you say these big companies can't change and they get, you know, locked in their ways and, you know, it's, because I've been really fascinated, going back to my training in, in neuroscience and cognitive science, what, what's, the, what's the cognitive basis of the refusal to innovate? And, and so, because people even, you know, they get even more resistant to innovation when they're in trouble. And that's exactly when they should be most willing to try new things, yeah, yeah. right? And instead they clutch and they, they hold on tighter to the, you know, the sort of the money is slipping through their fingers and they're, they're holding on to fewer and fewer uh, uh, um, units of currency. And, and so, so there, there are a series, I call it the three-headed hydra of, of you know, of corporate innovation, you know, it's this beast that you have to slay if you want to successfully innovate inside of a, a large organization, right? So what are the three heads of that? There are actually a lot of cognitive biases that are going on, but the three of them show up again and again. And so one of them is um, uh, th this idea of, it's known as the mere exposure principle, yeah. or the familiarity principle. So essentially, familiarity does not breed contempt. Familiarity breeds comfort. The thing that we see every day, we feel really good about. And so most people, 94% of people, what, outside of COVID, 94% of people walk to work the same way on the same streets or they drive in the same path. They go to the same coffee shop at the same rough time. Yeah. You know, they have very predictable patterns. People are comfortable as creatures of habit. It helps them make chaos, uh, order out of a chaotic world. Right. And, and so, um, so when you show up and you say, hey, try this new thing, why don't we try this new business model or launch this new product or whatever, you get the resistance of, of people, you know, this mere exposure of I'm comfortable with the thing that I see every day and I'm uncomfortable with the new thing. Right. So that's the first one. The second one is um, uh, the endowment effect. The endowment effect says that the thing that I have is massively valuable versus anything else. People tend to overvalue the things that they have versus other things. Right. I love my business model. It's a great business model. The third is uh, uh, loss aversion. Loss aversion. The fear of what if it doesn't work or will I look foolish and silly? Will I lose my job if we try this thing and it doesn't work? And, and so when you combine those three things, they all feed off of each other. So that you're asking me to give up the thing that I have every day, that I see every day that I'm comfortable with, that I think is incredibly valuable, and I, will, I can only lose, if, if things go poorly, I, I lose the thing that I have, and I also you know, lose my job. Um, and so that creates institutional resistance or institutional inertia to trying new things. And, and so it plays out in a really amazing set of cognitive distortions, um, which uh, uh, you know we those of us in the in a, excuse me those of us in the innovation business call uh, you know the corporate immune response. It's just like the immune response in your body, where white blood cells come and eat foreign invaders. That's how they perceive new ideas, and so the the immune response kicks in and and kills off new ideas, um, and so. What you want to do is, and this is why you have to create an innovation function that's sponsored by the CEO and slightly to one side of the main business in its early stages. Right. Because you can actually generate a lot of new ideas quickly just within an organization. In any 10,000 person organization, there are probably 30,000 good, uh, well, not all of them are good. There are 30,000 ideas without even going outside and doing open innovation. The issue is, people are not empowered to hand those ideas to someone and whoever they hand it to are typically not empowered to do something about it, to be given permission to try something new with a different business model and put the corporate brand at risk and all the things that are involved in, you know, actually creating something new.
And the way the biases show up, there's these cognitive distortions. People start getting angry and hostile and they make stuff up and they really get emotional about business, about work. Yeah, that's a funny thing. But however, I would argue that we would differentiate between, you know, really radical, like, you know, groundbreaking new stuff, right? So let's say really coming from, okay, there's a, you know, there's merit to a potential new business model, right? And innovation within, let's say, the existing structures and processes. Because that's the thing, you know, that's exactly what you just said, right? There's 30,000 ideas, right? But, you know, how many of these ideas are just like, okay, you know, you know what, we could actually do this better. It, this is taking way too much time. We could automate some things, right? Or maybe- Yeah, so, so statistically, there's a 10 to one ratio. So, so out of the 10, let's say out of the 30,000 ideas, um, there's probably five to eight game changers and maybe 50 incremental innovations okay. that would sort of help things along a little bit. But, that, but, but yeah, you got to start with 30,000 to get those small numbers of- you know, things that actually like move the needle. But then again, do we see, I mean, on a, on a, on a wide scale, we do not really see, you know, successes and let's say, you know, filtering that down and actually things coming out of, out of, out of that large organism, right? I, I disagree. Amazon successfully incubated AWS. <laughs> that was yeah, an outlier idea. But then again, would we take Amazon as a traditional example? Like, or like as a, like, is Amazon with its, let's say, corporate DNA. Walmart.com. Great right. success. Right, Walmart right, right. Retail Link, actually, which is less well-known, which is the, the way that Walmart handles just-in-time inventory on their store shelves. Yeah, they've done a, they've done a good job on that one. I, yeah, I yeah. So, so there are plenty of examples. It's just, you know, people always like to, to point at the failures because it's not as, it doesn't grab as many headlines as, as the you know the successes right it's always more fun for for a, a journalist to to mock a well-established reputable brand it's always easier to criticize than to create yeah i mean it's it's not a, it's not really about let's say criticizing and just like you know looking for the bad it's really just like okay you know what what is working what is not working you know, so, and, and I mean, just to phrase you again, a couple of minutes ago, you said, you know, there's still troubles, let's say, especially from a corporate venturing perspective, you know, actually on this, I, I, talk, I had a guest in my podcast, you know, who is uh, also, let's say, has been active in uh, corporate venturing for, yeah. um, let's say, over two decades. And, and he also said, like, you know, that's that the funny thing, uh, the same thing as you said, is that corporates are really, let's say, holding to their money instead of, let's say, you know, really investing and let's say taking those risks right and he said he argued actually i would look at the budget that google is taking right and then just you know calculate that to my to my numbers and basically just take that portion right so to know what what how much money do i need to spend to compare you know to the percentage. yeah i mean you know I, I i agree and i disagree so he's absolutely right in that if you didn't have to worry about public shareholders and margins you would yeah. do that yeah. the issue is Google is so insanely profitable due to their near monopoly on search that they can afford to actually be the number one AI R&D investor in the world, right? They generate the most papers of anyone. Um, and, and so, uh, uh, and Google X, I mean, whatever, Alphabet has done a lot in a lot of different areas. Nothing has yet managed to rival their actual core search engine and page rank, but they continue to invest for that future. Um, and, and so, you know, the issue is if your boots or, you know, um, whatever, uh, uh, Daimler or, I mean, pick a company. If yeah. you're a traditional company, the investors who gave you money, the, the shareholders, are sitting there going, I want predictability around my money. And I need to know, you know, uh, that you're going to reliably deliver returns in these profiles, and and the, the de definitionally corporate innovation is has has a lot of volatility to it. Eighty percent of the time, you should be failing, or you're not trying hard enough. You're literally not experimenting enough to find those breakthrough things because the twenty percent that work end up giving you multiples back. And and, and so um, so so I'm empathetic, but look at Dell, right? Dell went private in order to really do like transformation, massive restructuring, rebuilding of its business um, uh, in, in the face of, of, you know, competitive forces in the computer industry. 
because they just couldn't do it as a public company because the public company shareholders would have, you know, mutinied. Right, right, right. right. And, and so that, you know, that is one of the problems, which is in a budget constrained, in a resource constrained world, how do you do it? Now, here's where people get tripped up. It's actually not that expensive to do the riskiest parts of corporate innovation. My, my estimation is it's usually between 10 and $20 million US per year mm-hmm. for two or three years to generate enough value that you could then have things that are either more reliably fundable or you could spin them out into a JV and get external funding. All of the private equity firms would love to do deals like that because they get, you know, a lot of the risk has been taken out. And, you know, so, so there's, I, I exaggerate, many. There are many funding sources once you get past that initial risk capital. And, you know, for, for a company that has 10 billion of turnover, 100 billion of turnover a year, spending 10 million on an innovation initiative is, is you know, a rounding error. But yet, they don't. <laughs> well, then let's, let's have a closing remark on that. I mean, let's, let's have a closing remark on that corporate venturing space. Then what is, then from your perspective, I mean, you know, from, from your observations, you say, okay, there's good examples, but then again, there's bad examples. So yeah. what, is, what is your take on that? What, 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 what is from your opinion, you know, something, you know, to do, or let's say to, yeah. you know, so, so, a succeeding or successing model kind of, right? The, the good news is <laughs> that uh, their corporate venturing is susceptible to analysis, right. meaning it's not just random guessing. You, there is a disciplined methodology that repeatedly works, that you can, repeatedly works, that you can employ. And if you have the discipline to commit to the three to five year launch cycle, you will be able to get uh, an acceptable return. Right. So, however, the biggest problem in that is, as you said, it's, it's about funding, right? It's about, let's say, having that CEO. It's about sponsorship. Sponsorship, exactly. Yeah, sponsorship, you can get funding, right? Yeah, that, that's what I meant. I meant sponsorship, yeah. Yeah. It's about the CEO. Say, if a CEO walks into their job on, here's the other problem. CEO walks into their job on day one. They spend a year just figuring out kind of what's going on and, and, and then another year re-engineering the stuff that the last guy did right. and, and planning for the next thing. Then they spend the third year sort of starting to implement things. Their fourth year is frequently when they'll then implement their corporate venturing initiative and then they're out. Yeah. And so a lot of CEOs say, well, I'm not going to get credit for this because it's really the next guy who's going to get the advantage of it. Yeah. And so they just don't do it. And so if you're a visionary CEO and you come in and in your first 90 days, you start your corporate venturing initiative, you actually may have some results to point to before the end of your tenure. That's so that would be the major recommendation I would make to a CEO yeah. is you've got a lot on your hands with the main business, start your skunk works in parallel yeah. and you will get the benefit of it three, four years from now. That, that, that's, that's funny. That's an incredible federal statements. Well, let's, um, I mean, we, we've got to look at the time. Let's move uh, forward to the next one. Um, or let's say uh, you choose chronologically. What makes sense? Should we go into, let's say, your entrepreneurial? entrepreneurial? No, I mean, I, I can summarize the, the, the next, you know, 20 years after, after uh, uh, GE and, and NYU by saying, you know, I, I spent a couple of decades um, alternating between working either as a VC or inside startups and uh, um, inside big companies, helping them create new things. Um, and then, you know, I, I kind of fell into doing turnarounds right around the, the 2008 housing crisis and, um, and some really incredible stories that, that, you know, for another time around that. But, but I, I realized I was starting to work with a lot of people I didn't like doing work I didn't enjoy because a lot of turnarounds involve firing people without getting sued. And I got really good at firing people without getting sued. But what I like doing is growth. I like building new things. Um, And so I said, okay, I need to press the reset button. So I am going to step back from corporate. Uh, And and so I walked away from what was potentially going to grow to a seven-figure salary within six months. And and I said, okay, I'm going to find the right kind of nonprofit that I want to work with. I'm going to, you know, get a job there, having no background in nonprofit. 
Um, and what a lot of people inside of nonprofit feel is that if you haven't worked in nonprofit, you can't possibly understand how to work in nonprofit. Um, I will tell you for a fact that it's not the case, but, but that's like a, a, a not invented here mentality. Um, and, and so, so I looked around and I said, uh, uh, you know, okay, well, what kind of organization do I want to be at? And then I conducted a structured search very similar to the way that I had launched new products for 20 years. So I had a thesis, I developed an interview guide, I found you know, different people to talk to. So I interviewed people, everyone ranging from board of directors of a major, you know, you know, large charity to very, you know, like small early stage. There was a friend of mine who asked me to be the director of his $10 million foundation for nature conservation. So it's like a lot of stuff that I was looking at. And I concluded, you know what, I want to be in an academic environment because in parallel with my corporate career, I had either been formally teaching classes or guest lecturing for, for a couple of decades, uh, um, or at that time, I guess it was maybe 14 years. Uh, but I'd been, been enjoying sort of the, the, um, the stimulation that comes with academia and the, the joy that comes from mentorship. Right. And, and so I said, okay, I wanna be in an academic institution uh, it should be a place that has a lot of research that values innovation. Um, and I, for a variety of reasons, I wanted to be in the, the Northeast United States. Uh, and so that kind of drove me to move from New York to Boston. And I interviewed with a whole bunch of different, you know, universities in the Boston area because it's a, a major industry in Boston. And, and kind of got down to the point where uh, and it was really funny because the the smaller schools, like the little liberal arts schools, had no idea why I was talking to them. Right. How come? And and MIT and Harvard got into a bidding war for me. And uh, how come they didn't know how to talk to me, or or how come there was a bidding war? Well, how how come they didn't know why you were talking to them? Oh, um, you know, cause, so I wanted to. What I figured out is based on what I knew how to do. So I had a lot of experience in business development. Yeah, yeah. All right. I can do fundraising for these universities. That's something which they would hire me for. No yeah. one at that point was going to pay me to be a, a, an instructor, but they would pay me to, to raise money for them. Um, and, and furthermore, um, a some of the more progressive ones, and MIT and Harvard were both in this bucket, realized that they needed to try something different. They wanted to innovate a bit. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so, so the small universities couldn't think out of the box. They wanted someone with a traditional profile. MIT and Harvard felt, um, you know, this guy could bring something that we don't have that we want. Yeah. And so MIT hired me and, and very happy that they did. I had no ties to the, the Institute, but they hired me to do what I had been doing for the Fortune 1000 for, for 20 years, which was help them create new models for revenue growth. Yeah. And, and eventually I grew beyond just trying to do that for fundraising. Uh, into doing that across several different areas of the Institute. Um, and then some of my colleagues heard, realized that I had teaching credentials and asked me to help them start teaching. And I got very good reviews and students started asking me to teach stuff. And, and that led to me actually teaching a lot of things. And that kind of led to the, the next phase of my career. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, was, it was out of, that was the first time I had set a goal for a job. Previously, I just sort of bounced around from someone worked with me, invited me to work with them. And that was kind of how my career went for, for a couple of decades. And I realized, you know what, I, I need to take control of this. And that's where, that's what led me to MIT. I also decided, you know, I'm going to work in nonprofit. I'm going to write a book. Those were the things I want. And then I'll find some idea in academia that I can spin out into a new company. So I'll work in nonprofit, in nonprofit for two to five years. And then, and then I'll go do another startup. Right. Let's um, let's delve a little bit more into that and uh, in, in the teaching and the teaching part. Um, you know what I find uh, find interesting is because I mean you know you you let's say compared to a traditional let's say you know um, researcher let's say that works at university and then basically in order you know for their research to be funded they they teach these curriculums right that are let's say every year they're almost the same. I mean they adjust stuff, but how is that different? How is it, how was it different? Let's say to the stuff that you were teaching or that you were bringing to the table because most academics actually, from my experience, most academics, I mean, they, you know, that's why they do a PhD because they want to be, let's say within, you know, they want to be in an academic environment. They want to do research and um, you know, they're not really, let's say going into this, you know, applied world basically going into, let's yeah. say, 
exactly this factor that you brought to the table because I, I can see where, let's say, the value proposition or let's say the unique selling point is basically, right? But mm -hmm. how was that, how was that differentiating and how did you, let's say, how did you uh, tackle that basically? Yeah, so, so let me kind of take that in parts. First of all, I think you're, you're almost correct. You know, so in order to get promoted and, and become tenured in academia, you have to publish. The focus is on research production. Right. So that is absolutely true. Um, the classes that they teach in many institutions um, are kind of a requirement of the job. Exactly. Um, it's not because it's directly tied to their research funding. It's more right. like if you're, let's look at business education. If you're in a business school, um, many schools, or at least some schools, many top schools have a certain teaching obligation that you have to fulfill yeah. as someone who is a professor. And yeah. so you have to, there's like a point system and you get points for different things. And, and, and so you have to fulfill your points, right? Yeah. Not everybody does this, but, but many do. And, and so you get people who are being forced to teach because they have to fulfill under contract, um, not necessarily because either they love teaching or that it's where they want to focus their energy. But that's not true of everybody. There are professors who do love teaching. They happen to also be good at research. Um, but then there's a whole other world of adjunct faculty. These are people who are practitioners frequently, and they teach because they love teaching. They could get paid 10 times as much money, five times as much money outside the university to do consulting or run a company or whatever, um, but they accept a much lower compensation of teaching uh, um, uh, because they love teaching. Right. And, and I often have this debate because, you know, the, we'll have executive education clients come to a university and say, oh, I want, I want professors who have this great research and they have to teach in this program. And I said to them, well, look, you want a whole bunch of other things that are performance criteria, which I don't think you're going to get given who you've identified. Yeah. No, no, no. We have to have like the real professor. And then, and then they're unhappy with the result. And sometimes I'm able to convince them, tell you what. We'll try a little bit of that, but let's have most of it be actually teaching faculty who, who do this because they love teaching. And they are attached to the university, so they pass certain quality screens. So like at, at Oxford, for example, I need to have a rating from my students that's above a certain level for them to continue to allow me to teach. Right. And if I don't, then, then I'm not gonna get renewed. Yeah. And so unlike the tenured faculty, you know, I have to prove my worth every year. Right. So, um, uh, and it doesn't make me superior to the tenured faculty, but it does mean that, that kind of there's a regular check-in on my teaching capabilities. Uh, and, and, you know, there are tenured faculty actually I've found who are, care a lot about their student ratings and want to improve how they teach. And, and so I really, you, you have to be very careful about generalizations. Yeah. Uh, but but, um, uh, but there, there's this whole world of adjuncts who are practitioners frequently, who bring perspectives from industry and the smart schools leverage that talent in conjunction with research faculty. So the adjuncts help translate those great research ideas into something that are digestible for students and, and executives doing executive education. Then you run into situations where, you know, universities will have, so this happened at, at NYU when I was there. Um, the business school had a lot of adjuncts because it's a business school. You want to have the practitioner perspective alongside the researchers and yeah. it had very good ratings as a result. And, and, um, and then there was a new president appointed for all of NYU and he made a blanket statement that we have to reduce reliance on adjuncts across the entire university. Right. And so for the art department or the performance, you know, the history department, that was, you know, probably I would imagine annoying, but not fatal. For the business school, this was like a major problem right. because you know, business education, I believe, is made significantly better by adjuncts. Right. And that's what I bring. I bring the practitioner perspective, but I have done some research and I write a lot. And so I am also able to bring an ability to interpret uh, rigorous academic research into uh, um, digestible pedagogy that, that you know, executives and online students or whoever can can absorb 100 percent. i mean especially because i mean you've you've gone through the process of yourself right i mean you've studied you've once studied and you've and you know you know you are able to you know um 
or you know what research means in the sense of, you know, how do you write an academic paper, right? If you write a thesis, for example, in your bachelor or master studies or whatever, right? You, you write a thesis and, and you know what, let's say, what it means to, let's say, look up for research, right? What it means to, 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 do, to do that work. And, and that process is not changing, right? In fact, it's, it's you know, it's a, it's, one, it's a process. Obviously, there's different methodologies to that. But I mean, you know, once, you, once you've gone through that, you know, it's, it's not different. I mean... Uh, I would argue that, like, for example, I, I've, I've written, I've, I've done a bachelor's and a master's, and for both, I've written a thesis, you know, that mm -hmm. next step then would be obviously, you know, in a PhD to go more in detail and just write a bigger piece, you know, and just do more, let's say, more or longer research. So therefore, I, I would argue exactly, you know, this is that I, I see, I, I, I do have the same opinion as well in, in regards to business schools, you know, if you have people that have an academic, uh, you know, background, or let's say education, you know, and then let's say paired together with their, let's say, vast experience in, in the field, you know, in an applied field, then that is a winning combination that just like brings so much value to, to let's say, students that are you know, and the vast majority is looking, I mean, what, what, what are business students doing, right? After graduation, they, they're going into, let's say, they're going into the world, right? They're going into these different jobs. And for them having these, you know, having these views already early on in their studies is giving so much, let's say, you know, so much value to them. It's, it's incredible. Yes, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to overstate the case, right? I, I get good teaching ratings, but I'm always learning. Right. right. So, so on one class at Oxford, I felt really good about getting a 4.6 out of five, um, mm -hmm. which is good. Uh, and then, you know, a colleague of mine who was also teaching the same class got a, a 4.8 and, and, you know, or 4.9, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm always, uh, um, uh, there's always someone else you can learn from who right. can help you better. Uh, right. And, and one of the other things that I do, which, um, probably hurts my ratings, but it, I find it important to do and also intellectually stimulating is, um, you know, I will take risk. So I will try a new exercise or a new approach or a new model rather than um, simply, you know, refining the thing I did last year. And frequently I've found I get a lower score for that risk taking. Right. Because it's, it's still a little raw. And then I have to work on it and refine it. And then the second time I do it, it's better. It gets a higher score. Uh -huh. You know, because students will rate you on each individual session. That's, that's really interesting. Maybe um, to kind of make the transition or as a last point on that education part, before we go into, let's say, what you're doing right now, or let's say the endeavors that you're doing on a, on a let's say, uh, from a venture within education, is um, how do you see or what is your opinion now, especially, let's say, looking, looking how education has changed through, let's say, you know, the different opportunities that we have on, on free education online through MOOCs and all that stuff. How do you see these, especially, you know, these big institutions that we have, these big educational brands that we have? I mean, wherever you go, right? If you're in the U.S., whether you're in Europe, we have those top 10, you know, these top 10 universities that every, let's say, you know, everybody's looking up to those big brands. Mm -hmm. How is that changing? What is your perspective on this? You know, what, how, how, how is that going to change in the, in, or is it already changing now? And what is it going to look like in the future? Maybe? Yeah. So good question. I mean, it, it, so the educational industry is, I believe on a 20 year trend of massive transformation. Okay. And um, digital is absolutely part of that. And under COVID, it's accelerated dramatically. Yeah. Um, it's important to understand what I mean by digital, though. So, uh, um, you know, MOOCs, you see these things on edX or Coursera or Udacity, it's massively open online courses. Um, they unfortunately have a very low completion rate. Yeah. So out of all the people who start them, the latest, and the numbers keep going down. So the most recent numbers were, out of all the people who start MOOCs, 3.13% uh, finish them. So if I'm teaching on campus and only 3% of my students actually pass my class, they won't ask me back. All right, so that's a, you know, a notable point. There are people inside the MOOC industry who say that's unfair. You have a lot of people who are not really seriously taking the class or just window shopping. And so if you, if you accept that argument and you measure on those bases, um, you get somewhere like 20% of okay. people finish, which yeah. is better. Look, it's an order of magnitude better, but it's still not great. However, if you apply 
new lessons of cognitive and neuroscience, and you bring in um, artificial intelligence coaches that help people work better together as they're learning at scale. So I'm not talking like a 50 person class, I'm talking a 5,000 person class. Then you can improve the completion rate to as high as you know, 96%. Right. Um, maybe maybe go more in into detail. What, what what do you mean by by these individual comp components bringing in them uh, bringing them in? What what would that uh, look like, or what would that mean? Yeah, well, I mean, so there's an array of techniques, okay. uh, uh, more than two dozen techniques of cognitive and neuroscience that, if you apply them to designing and implementing classes, they improve performance. Right, and these include uh, attention span research which gets to like how you design the videos and how long they are and what happens in the video. These include, um, uh, uh, you know, memory and learning research to look at, uh, for example, if you learn a class, if you're taking a class over a period of weeks, you learn much better than if you try to cram it all into one weekend. There's something known as the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, which says, you know, within, a couple of days, you've forgotten half of what was just taught to you, unless we do other things to reinforce that learning. Um, there's a concept known as interstitial testing, which says if I give you a little quiz between segments of videos, instead of giving you videos and then quizzing you, you will do much better at remembering the material. Right. The act of being forced to try to remember the material makes you remember it better. Right? So these are just examples of this library of techniques that uh, so I started a company that applies this, right? Um, and then the other part of it is, is the massive failure of online learning to handle community and group activity. 100%, 100%. Huge problem, um, you know, because if you think about it, what do you do in the workplace, right? In, in the work environment, you're usually in a team with people from different backgrounds and you're working on a problem. That's called work and that's how we gain expertise, right? But when we teach people, Online in particular, it's a solo experience watching video, usually passively. And so if we could, so one thing is let's put people into groups and they're solving problems for online. So that's an architectural decision. But then, you know, the ideal would be me there while your group is working, your group of three or four people, and I'm kind of coaching you a little bit to facilitate that group interaction so you work better as a team. Well, I can do that if it's a seminar of eight or 10 people. I can't do that with a thousand people. Yeah, obviously, yes. Unless I build an AI tool that is the virtual me that basically nudges your group okay. while you're working. And so we've studied this with the National Science Foundation grant mm -hmm. on a class that we did on artificial intelligence entrepreneurship of all things. And uh, um, uh, the students, so even using all those great techniques of cognitive science and neuroscience and tension span research and all that stuff to design the class, when we added the AI coaching engine, people did 30% better again. So, so I'm already taking something where I'm improving the completion rate by a factor of 30, 30 times better. Yeah. And now I'm improving everyone's grades, completion rates, net promoter scores, all these other dimensions of, of success and performance by adding this AI coaching engine. Right. Is there, have, is there a study or has there been a study that let's say compares, you know, because if we take traditional education, so if we take mm -hmm. a, uh, if we take a university program, for example, a bachelor's or a master's program that the, um, let's say a student, uh, a student is, is admitted to and is, let's say, com completing, there's different factors or, uh, let's say, identifying different factors that, um, that basically make up the, uh, the performance of that student. And I mean, there's, there's several that we can think of right, right away, right? There's, um, there's a, a completely different commitment from, from a financial perspective, right? So for example, obviously if I spend, you know, uh, 10K or 20K per year on my, on, on, on my, on my degree, right? Um, uh, compared to let's say 20 bucks per month, right? There's a completely different seriousness kind of to, to, the, to the whole endeavor. And the other thing is that you mentioned already is what is the USP of university right now? The USP or before COVID, it is right. exactly this community factor. Right, right, right. No, I mean, it's a real problem. So, so first of all, a, a lot of the top schools have an additional USP of the brand of the credential. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. And even under COVID, that still has value. Yeah, 100%. Um, you saw the Harvard students complaining that they're paying $51,000 to stream Harvard 
But, you know, I would argue they may be complaining about the fact that they don't get to go to parties. <laughs> so it's like, the, the, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm empathetic because a Zoom call as an educational platform is not what I mean by a digital class. Right. A Zoom call is what I'd call a virtual class. Okay. And so it is possible to take a Zoom call virtual class and make it be as good as a classroom. And I know this because I did it this spring. I did, I had all these colleagues who were, were sideways on their, on their classes when COVID lockdown happened. So I jumped in and helped guest lecture and students said it was just like being in a classroom. So it is possible to make that experience good, right. um, but you can make it even better with natively digital, which is a much more expensive proposition to put together. But the problem is that a lot of the faculty are just being sort of thrown in there and being told, take your three hour lecture and just deliver it over Zoom. And that doesn't work because your brain operates differently in a video call than when you're in a face-to-face -face environment. 100%. You've got distractions, there are email alerts popping up, text messages, yeah. looking at a screen is cognitively fatiguing compared to you know, being in a classroom where you've got that sort of dynamic interaction between the professor and the students. Right, however, um, and an additional point is, uh, you know, in regards to that community building, if I look at my experience, if, if I look at my educational experience, um, you know, also going, let's say, to, a, to an institution that, um, that is, let's say, you know, recognized in terms of ranking and stuff like that, um, it is about the people that you jointly, you know, have yeah. this experience with. And that goes, and exactly, this is the partying part, what you just said, right, is, you know, it is... It doesn't is, have to be though. It is about the relationships that you build throughout that yeah. time, which are invaluable, right? If I go to- No, I get it. But uh, I mean, I've, done, I've recreated this online. So I've had students, I've had 15,000 online students in 140 countries. And my students have said to me that they're still in touch, for example, with the, the three people who were in their randomly assigned group from three years ago. Okay. That they worked on a project in a virtual class around and- you know, hundreds or thousands, depending on the city, of my students have created networking groups in their city. Pre-COVID, it was, they, they were meeting, you know, in person once a month to build further community, but it was randomly assembled people who were convened online and right. then they bridged back to in-person. Now it's all WhatsApp groups, but it's still hundreds or thousands. So in, in Singapore and Hong Kong, there's probably one to 2,000 students in London, there's at least 500 just in the blockchain community who took my class and then they were like, this is really great. We want to be, continue the dialogue with a community of like-minded innovators. Right. And, and so they did. Yeah, that's really maybe also natural like human behavior, right? To let's say you are exposed to a really big one. And, but then again, you know, if you have these are where if you dwell, like if you make it smaller, right, into project groups and then it's, you know, people just, you know, the desire to build relationships, you know, and to kind of get a, a group together, you know, like group dynamics and stuff like that. So maybe that's just like, you know, human psychology. So, yeah. Yeah, people are, are herd animals. Right, right. right. Pack animals. We, we gravitate towards this sense of belonging and shared experiences are one of the emotional triggers that, that foster that um, uh, sense of belonging, right? And so what we try to provide with the classes that we build, and this is one of the things I'm working on uh, right now, is that greater sense of community. And we use technology tools to help accelerate or facilitate that. Can you, can you give some examples maybe from a technological perspective? Yeah, so, so uh, as I mentioned, there's this AI coach that, that, so we put you into a group and you work on group projects with assigned tasks and we have very carefully designed prompts for what your group works on. And, uh, um, and then while you're having the video call, talking to each other about the problem or trying to solve the problem, um, the AI coach is giving you feedback in real time, positive feedback that research has shown out of MIT changes behavior and improves group performance towards high productivity. Um, and then after the call is over, we give you a more detailed dashboard. So you can get feedback on your own performance and how it relates to the group and how to improve yourself. And a study we did with uh, 150 business school students found that again, those teams over a notice period of probably three-ish weeks had a noticeable change in behavior 
towards what has been shown in other studies to be a more sort of optimal new venture startup creativity innovation behavior set. Um, so we, we build that into the classes. Um, we build in a lot of clever tricks and tools and architecture to make the class more engaging so that you really find it stimulating. And um, so another thing we did is we created a simulation where, so one class we, we just are just wrapped up on cybersecurity uh, uh, at Oxford, and we created a simulation of a cyber attack that you and your team have to respond to in real time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's got a lot of constraints, and that's part of the exercise because it forces you to think through the essence of what to do in a cyber response scenario. Um, but uh, uh, you know, that demonstrably gives you a greater sense of applicability when you actually then do have a cyber attack later. So uh, um, you know, the, the whole point of doing emergency drills is that when you have an emergency, you know what to do. Yeah, and so we embed that into the curriculum. So it's not just talking about cybersecurity; it's simulating a cyber attack, and you have to come up with a response. That's really cool. So, uh, what is next for you guys then? Basically, maybe I mean you didn't mention it yet. What is what is the the startup called that you? Uh... Yeah, so so that company is called Esme Learning. All right. Esme Esme Learning. Um, we have a contract signed with Oxford. We're building a number of classes for them. Uh, we have contracts signed with two other schools that we hopefully will be announcing in September, October. Uh, um, and we have other schools that are in discussions with us. But we focus on working with top tier universities, frequently in collaboration with corporate partners. So MasterCard worked with us on the cyber class. They are one of the largest cybersecurity delivery platforms in the world. If you think about all the security around 880 million credit cards. Yeah. Uh, and, and, um, uh, and we deliver executive short courses. So you're a working professional, you need to pick up a new skill or, or get capability in a new technology area. Um, and, we, uh, um, and we put that together um, yeah. and give you high value for that you know, return on six weeks. That's uh, sounds really great. What are uh, maybe what are some of the next steps that you can that you can talk about for that? Well, it's again in a couple of weeks we're going to have hopefully some some announcements about what's coming next with Oxford. Okay. Uh, and and hopefully you know later in the fall we'll be able to announce these uh, uh, these other programs that we're doing. Uh, and and so building out in the short term it's building out a bunch of classes that will help people reskill themselves and be prepared for the digital future. We intend to, in the medium term, uh, invest further in our uh, um, technology platform and capabilities and continue to conduct research on how can we help you learn better, faster, and how can that have more impact on a company or a country? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, um, so that's sort of a little, looking a little further out. Yeah, I see. I see. I see. I see it perfectly. Let's say matching with uh, with with your personal background and your experience. I mean, you know, having both both let's say um, both worlds attached to yourself, right? Knowing, okay, what is like from a corporate perspective, right? What is needed there? What are what are, what what needs to be you know emphasis laid on, and then especially also coming from the academia, the academic side, right? To to kind of okay, now. How, how do classes need to be, let's say, delivered, right? What is, what is the right approach here? And especially, you know, from your, it's, it's funny, you know, just to see like from an entrepreneurial perspective, how, you know, there's like, you know, these thought strings basically attached to the idea. So it's, uh, yeah, you know, if you can design your ideal job, why wouldn't you? So uh, I've designed something around things that are, are natural for, for me to want to do. And, and it also ties into the book that I've got coming out in February from Little Brown, which is called, augmenting your career, right. how to win at work in the age of AI. And, yeah. and so we'll talk about the company, we'll talk about how AI is displacing jobs and also creating new opportunity. That's great. Well, David, that was a, it was a pleasure talking to you. It was a great podcast. Uh, Thank really, you, Jonathan. Uh, glad to have you on the show. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Please don't hesitate to call. <laughs>